From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. In the region this podcast focuses on, Russia, Eastern Europe, and the former Soviet Union, there's no lack of people who, at one moment in their lives, had to make a decision that would change their own future and sometimes change history as well. I had a chance to talk with one of those people just a few days ago. Her name is Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. She's 38 years old, and until about a year ago in May, she was a mother living in Belarus who had stopped teaching in order to raise two children, one of whom has a disability. Her husband was a pro-democracy activist, a popular video blogger who intended to run for president against the autocratic leader Alexander Lukashenko, who's been in power for 27 years. Sikhanovsky was arrested, and he's been in prison ever since. So his wife Svetlana, who had never run for any office, decided to run in Sergei's place. Lukashenko claimed he won. The Democratic opposition said he stole the election, that Svetlana had won. She had to flee to Lithuania with her children. In late July, she traveled to Washington, D.C., meeting with members of the Biden administration, Congress, and many others. We spent nearly an hour at her hotel, talking about Belarus and her own life. Madam Sikhanovska, thank you so much for talking with us. I know this is a very busy time for you. In fact, here we are in a hotel in Washington, D.C. You've been meeting with a lot of people. Was it a busy day for you today? Today is a Friday, is our last day in Washington, and I say it a little bit easier than the previous ones. We had just a couple of political meetings and we visited the National Library here, and in the evening we have two more political meetings. It's not overscheduled. Usually we have 10, 15 events every day. Ooh, that's a lot. That's a lot, but it's my job now to keep Belarus on agenda. We need to talk as much as possible about Belarus, about our fight to give people more understanding what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. And you've been meeting with the Biden administration. Can you tell us who you've met with and how is it going? What have you been saying to them and what have they been saying to you? In the White House, I met with Jake Sullivan. And it's extremely high level of mm-hmm. acceptance. And I'm really grateful to the USA for organizing such meetings for me. Because for 27 years, for 28 years already, between Belarus and most of other countries, connections was lost. And it's very important to be accepted in White House and State Department. And we met with senators and House of Representatives. And we had a good political meetings here. And at every meeting, of course, we are talking about Belarus, about our fight, about common values we are fighting for. And particularly in Jake Sullivan's office, we talked, first of all, about pressure on the regime. We talked about imposing stronger sanctions, sectoral sanctions on the regime because we understand that sanctions is not silver bullet. It will not bring our country to democracy immediately, but it can help to stop 
violence on the ground, to release political prisoners, and to make regime start dialogue with civil society. This is what we want. We want our protests to keep peaceful and to prove that it's possible in the era when there is struggle between autocracy and democracy. We want to be example how it's possible peacefully to bring country to democratic changes. Then we understand that without assistance to civil society that are fighting on the ground now and for those who are in exile, how this assistance is important. Because now regime is destroying everything in Belarus. They are destroying economy, they are destroying NGOs and organizations that have existed for years in Belarus. But now regime wants to silence everybody. They don't want the world know about our resistance. They make people flee the country. But in this moment, Belarusian people are so creative, so inventive. Our mass media was destroyed. People had to relocate and they continue to spread the word about Belarus. They continue to collect news from inside. It's already usual people are becoming journalists on the ground. Mm. They send videos, they send pictures from enterprises, from all the regions just to inform us what's going on. And the third point of our discussions was vision of future Belarus, because we understand that we are in our struggle now. It's very difficult path to democracy, but we have to think not only about fighting, but also about future Belarus. We want our country to be safe and prosperous, and we ask for macro aid in new Belarus. European Union has already launched a Belarus comprehensive plan. It means that after new elections, European Union will help us with financial aid just to restore economy, to help reforms, economic reforms, educational reforms, medical care reforms in Belarus to stabilize the situation in Belarus. And if the USA would launch something like this, would declare that the USA will be with us after changes in Belarus. It will be a strong signal to Belarusians themselves and to those who are still supporting Lukashenko's regime. Mm. They are supporting the regime not because they want to do this. The majority of people want changes. People are fed up with absence of law in our country, with human rights violations, but they also afraid. People in the regime are scared. It's like mafia. It's easy to enter this regime, but it's difficult to leave it. So our task is to show alternative for those people who are still keep loyalty to the regime. Let me ask you, on the sanctions, the Belarusian economy, I don't know it very, very well, but I know it well enough to know that it's a little different. And I'm just wondering what kind of sanctions you would suggest to really I'm sure what you want to do is damage Lukashenko's regime. What kind of sanctions are you talking about? The most important enterprises of our country are monopolized with the state. Mm. And we want put heat on sectors of our economy like potash, like petroleum, steel, wood and financial sphere of the regime. So we think that it's the powerful leverage to influence behavior of regime and his cronies. Yeah. And then you're talking about aid, but of course, it sounds like the Europeans are talking about get rid of Lukashenko, then we will help you. So <laughs> that raises this issue, which is the main one. How do you end the regime of Lukashenko? 
I mean, realistically, because we've seen and we've all the world has been watching for basically a year, these protests for very brave people on the streets. But realistically, the crackdown continues. A lot of people are leaving Belarus. What do you do concretely to bring an end to that regime? A lot of people are leaving and a lot of people are in jail. Mm-hmm. And we have to stop this and to stop this. We have a strategy, first of all, to keep our resistance nonviolent, to build structures on the ground. Now they are secret structures, underground structures, but they are appearing and more and more people are involved in this. So Belarusians are doing their homework. They are putting pressure from inside. Our workers are organizing in striking committees and they're preparing for national-wide strike. We have a chain of volunteers that are working inside the country. They are widespread in Samizdat, it's self-made newspapers, to inform people about the real situation in Belarus, especially those regions that are lack of internet or faraway regions, villages. We have about 40 different initiatives on the ground, like organizations of sportsmen, of people of culture. People are helping each other, spreading the word about the situation on uh, digital platforms. We are using Telegram channels, YouTube channels to continue show what's going on on the ground. So people on the ground, they're doing their job. It's impossible now for people to have huge demonstrations because the level of repressions is awful. Mm. People are really afraid, but despite of the violence, this is real heroism, that people are violated, people can be imprisoned any moment, but they step by step continue and fight how they can. It's very important to support those who are in prisons. People are sending thousands of letters to people who are behind the bars to support them. It's also showing their solidarity. People are helping to the families of repressed people, help them to relocate, buy presents for the children, collect and raise money when it's necessary to pay a fee to the state. So pressure from inside, pressure from outside, sanctions and political isolation, economical isolation, diplomatic isolation of the regime. It will bring regime to the point when they understand that they are toxic to everyone. Nobody wants to communicate to them. Nobody wants to talk. Nobody can't have trade relationship with the regime. And they will not have out only change behavior and start also to look for a way out of the situation. And we will be ready for this. We organized platform for dialogue. We have coordination council that is a group of experts that are ready to talk with the representatives of the regime on future elections, on transition period, on new Belarus. And the processes inside the regime also going on. The businesses who are around Lukashenko now, they also understand that regime is over, it's sinking, and they don't want to share the responsibility with Lukashenko for his human rights crimes. And they have to choose if to stay within this regime and lose everything or to communicate to civil society to try build their businesses in New Belarus. The different processes are going on. There can be a lot of scenarios how it can happen. We don't know how it will happen for sure. Nobody can predict. Nobody predicted hijacking of flight. Nobody yes. predicted this massive migration to Lithuania of illegal migrants. But regime is also making mistakes. And nobody knows what can happen else or what will be the last point of this regime collapsing. The Soviet Union collapsed in six days. 
Nobody predicted this, but it happened. And our people are ready on the ground to fight, to resist. And in the regime, there is no trust to each other. People are afraid of betrayal. And Lukashenko now, he's living in a bunker surrounded by a very small group of people, and they are deciding something. But in the eyes of Belarusian people, and this is the most important, that in the eyes of Belarusian people, regime is illegal. Lukashenko is illegitimate. Mm. And he lost legitimacy also in the majority of democratic countries. He can't build new relationship for Belarus. He can't fundraise for Belarus. He is over. It's evident. It's only task of time when it will happen. He's toxic, apparently, to everybody but Vladimir Putin. And I want to talk about that because his one lifeline is really Russia. And you could say he's weakened because of that. He really owes Russia. He owes Putin for loans that are keeping him afloat, for political support. But as long as Putin holds on, doesn't it mean that Lukashenko is going to be in power until Putin gives up on him? If we continue to look at this problem like this, it could never end. We should look at Belarus differently as a separate country. We are not appendix of Russia. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have long relationship, trade relationship, but on political arena, this friendship of two persons only. And we want to keep good relationship with Russian people in future as well. We will always be neighbors. And government, it's not forever. It will change one day. For sure. And we will have to prolong our relationship. So it's high time also for all the countries that are continuing to support this regime to think, is it good for them to continue to support him at the moment? We have to make friendship with Lukashenko too high for other countries. Too costly. Too costly, yeah. Yeah. Too costly politically, too costly economically. And we send message to other countries. It's not about geopolitics. We are not fighting between east, west, south or north. We are fighting against the regime. We are fighting against violence and dictatorship in our country. And if you want to be constructive in getting out of this crisis, don't interfere into our politics. We don't have to put these two eggs in one basket. Don't look at us. Without Russia supporting, we will not be able to do anything. We have to. We have no choice. It's uh, <laughs> so strange to hear for Belarusians, you can't do anything. We have to. And we are on this difficult fight, but we have to fight. I found it interesting, as you've spoken publicly, you said that it's really not East or West. It's really Belarus as a country itself. And I'm interested in digging down into that a little bit in the future. Would you like to see Belarus as part of the EU? I don't know what future Belarus will have, but evidently that is future in the hands of Belarusian people. It's up to Belarusian people to decide where we want to move further, closer to east, closer to west, closer to Australia. I don't know. It's not time to decide. In our revolution, we don't have EU flags We don't see other countries' flags. We want to be free people, free of the regime. This is our task now, to bring our country to retain right to the people to choose a new president, 
to choose the person whom they want to be the leader of our country. And after this, we will decide where to go, how to go, what unities to enter. Not now. It's not our task mm. now. You said you don't want to run. If there's another election coming up, you will not run. So who would? Who is a standard bearer for democratic forces? Or who could be the candidate from democratic forces? We have a lot of wonderful people, wonderful managers in our country who really can be good presidents. Part of them are in prison. Part of them are in exile. New leaders could appear. This is democracy. Who is the leader now? I ask, what is leading now? Values are leading now. We are fighting for common values for all democratic countries. Rule of law, human rights, and democracy. This should be our light at the end of tunnel. Hmm. You talked about the political prisoners. In fact, do you know how many political prisoners or prisoners in general there are right now in Belarus? At the moment, officially recognized 572 political prisoners, but this number is growing every day. Overall, at the moment, on criminal cases charged about 1,000 people. Mm. And we can't count all those who have been arrested and released after 15, 30 days or a couple of months. We can't count all of them. But since August, more than 35,000 people have been detained. Hundreds were tortured in jail. So... That's the numbers. And this is in a population of about 9 million people, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the people who's in prison is your husband. Mm-hmm. So as we sit here in the hotel in Washington, D.C., he has been in prison since what, May of 2020? 29th of May. Yeah, 29th of May. So he's been in prison for more than a year. Yeah. What is that like to know? Are you even able to talk to him, communicate? Do you know where he is physically? I know where he is physically. My children are sending letters to him and a lot of people are sending letters to our political prisoners. But people in our country, even if they are on the ground, they can communicate to prisoners only through the lawyer. You can't call them by phone. You can't visit them. The lawyer is their only connection. Mm -hmm. And you can send only typical messages about health, about maybe parents, children, and lawyers can't say a word about the case. My husband is on so-called trial now, and a lawyer can't say a word about how it's going, how they are defending them, what people are saying, what our beloved are saying to the judges, to the prosecutors, how they protect themselves. Though they are innocent, they don't even have to protect themselves. It's up to judges to prove that you are guilty and they don't have evidences. Mm. And it's like order from up how many years these people have to get. Mm. And for example, Victor Babarika is already sentenced for 14 years in jail. A wonderful person, chairman of a bank. And my husband is strong, wonderful man. And he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He just was going around country asking people, how do they live? He gave the word to the people. Our mm. people have never had opportunity to talk aloud about their problems. They were afraid. And now in our jails, honestly, are best people of the country at the moment. IT specialists, sportsmen, people of culture, journalists, human rights defenders, activists, academics. You have two children, right? Yeah. 
So with your husband, Sergei, he is described as a blogger. So is that what he was doing in the beginning, doing interviews and talking with people? Yeah, from the beginning, about already three years ago, he started his YouTube channel where he wanted to talk about businesses in our country, how they are dealing with our system, with the regime. And step by step, he understood that people are so unhappy with their lives. They can't have normal businesses in Belarus. And step by step, it turned into more political channel. It wasn't in political, just look, given what to people, it's public opinion channel. But now regime is blaming him in starting revolution. Look, this is democratic values to give a word to people. Even if this word is against regime, we have our right to say what we don't like about our government. No, you are already criminal if you found strength in yourself to say what about what you don't like. Mm. So he became a candidate, right? No, he couldn't become candidate because at the moment when government knew that he is going to become candidate Uh, to give his documents, they imprisoned him. I see. And they didn't accept his documents. And I decided to support him and give my documents instead. Yeah. But you were a teacher, right? English teacher? I was a teacher long, long years ago. Last 10 years, I was mother. I have a child with special needs and I had to rehabilitate him for 10 years. So mm-hmm. I was worked as a mother of two for last years. And I never was in politics. But that's quite amazing. I mean, how did you even have the guts to do that? My first step was only to support my husband. I was sure that election commission will not allow me to participate in elections because I knew that I am wife of my husband. But regime saw that strong candidates will try to compete this year. And they imprisoned Viktor Babarika. They made Valery Tsipkala to flee. They imprisoned many other candidates. Mm. And they decided... We will leave the weakest one, woman, housewife, who will vote for her. She'll never get elected. Yeah, absolutely. And we see the result. The regime lost connection with people. They didn't realize that Belarusian society fed up with brutality. They fed up that government doesn't take care of them. COVID came and we once again understood the relation of government to the people. When openly Lukashenko said that you are guilty that you got COVID, it's all your fault. He died only because he's fat. Why did he go out to the street? He had to sit at home. It was like Mm. such irrespectness. Lack of respect. Yeah, yeah. And new generation grew up. Look, those people, our parents, they not many people had opportunity to travel from my parents' generation. And they don't know how other life can look like. But new generation, internet appeared. And new generation understand that, look, countries that are neighboring to us, they are prosperous. Mm. People are happy there. Every country has its own problems. But overall values, they are followed. And step by step, we came to understand that it's high time to change everything. New candidates, wonderful people. So we mobilized, we organized ourselves. In that queue, our system works like when you're a candidate, you have to collect 100,000 signatures 
to go further. And people stood in kilometers queues to put signatures for candidate. Mm. It was first time when so many people gathered and looked into eyes of each other and understood we won this. We managed to make these changes when we are united, when we are together. And then when candidates have been imprisoned, three women united. And it was also unexpected step of the government. And we united not only by three women, we united the population. Because, of course, my husband, Sergei, had his followers. Viktor Babarik and Valeria Tsipkala had their followers as well. And we united not around me as the future president, but about the idea that we, after fraudulent elections, because since the beginning we knew that they will be fraudulent, we will organize new free and fair elections. We organized about changes, and this united all of us. People even who would like to support Viktor Babaliko, Valeri Tsipkala, Usiri Tikhanovsky, they voted for me as for the symbol of changes. Mm. And regime didn't expect this. Mm-hmm. So just technically, for those who may not know the story mm-hmm. in great detail, you believe that you won the election. Yeah. And that essentially Lukashenko stole the election. Yes. The talk is not about belief. We know this because we have wonderful IT specialists in Belarus and we launched alternative counting of elections, mm-hmm. digital counting. First of all, we used simple things like white wrist bracelet and people who came to their election polls with this bracelet, it automatically meant that they voted for changes. And in the cabin, they made picture of their ballots and sent to platform that counted their votes. Hmm. And during this campaign, we explained people why it's important not to falsify elections, why it's important to put real numbers, real votes in the ballots. And when the first ballots with real numbers appeared, it was such a significant moment. We understood that people overstepped their fear. Mm. And when first ballots started to appear, regime forbade elections polls to show ballots. Mm-hmm. But we already had the results of voting. This platform named Golas can prove that Lukashenko lost. Mm. Uh-huh. And the regime destroyed all the evidences right after elections, this real paper ballots. Mm-hmm. So we don't believe in this. We know this. Can I ask you about your own life? I had read that when you were a little girl, you actually went to a camp in Ireland. Is that correct? Yeah, for, that's For correct. children who were affected yeah. by Chernobyl? Yeah, that's right. Oh, can you I, tell me about that? The first time I visited Ireland when I was 14 mm-hmm. years old, I spent there only a month. And it was like to discover other world. I lived in a small city. I didn't say a lot. We didn't have swimming pool or big shops, nice clothes. Our parents were always busy with earning money because it was lack of it, you know, and people were not happy, you know. In our shops, we never heard thank you or please. We still this Soviet Union uprising. But when I came to Ireland first time, I was astonished, first of all, with happy people. (laughs) 
people were talking to each other, smiling to each other, just these small talks we were not got used to. Of course, when I was 14, I couldn't understand a lot about politics, why we live so differently. But then when I was already, I think, 18, 19, I went to Ireland more and more times as interpreter already. And I started to analyze. It also didn't make me politically involved in the situation in Belarus, but this inner desire to live in the country where people happy where everything is okay, where you understand that government take care of you. Mm-hmm. No, it was like unconsciously it settled down in me. Yeah. You know, I remember myself because I've gone to Russia a lot over my life. And one of the things that I noticed a long time ago when I thought, aha, Russia is changing, was that people who were driving would actually stop for pedestrians instead of running them off the road. And I think it's what you're talking about, that there's a certain respect that comes from civil society, respect for other people. And to see that happening in a society is very interesting. I'm struck by how you were impressed by that and how it changed your thinking. It's a long process from one way of thinking to another. Mm-hmm. When you start to be polite, to respect others' rights, this is how society is developing. And we overgrown our government. Our government was spreading this stability mm-hmm. in our country. And we want development of our country. This is the difference. Mm-hmm. People in Belarus have really changed, too. I've talked with Belarusians who've explained that even economically, you had an IT industry that developed that helped to create a middle class, people demanding more for their own lives. And I find it very interesting. It's actually quite a sophisticated IT environment. Yeah, we with development of IT spheres in Belarus, more and more people who and good money appeared, but they worked for international companies, not like for Belarusian companies. But the interesting aspect that when revolution started, when uprising started, those people, IT specialists who earned good money, they also went out for revolution. It wasn't revolution because of poverty. All the social groups of our population went out for demonstrations. It was demonstration for dignity, for rule of law, against violence, against lie, against fraudulent elections. It doesn't matter how much you earn. It matters how you are respected by your government. Well, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, thank you very much. I appreciate your taking the time, and I hope that you will stay in touch. I know you're going back to Vilnius early next yeah. week, and good luck there. And I hope you will stay in touch in case there are developments. You'll talk to our podcast and give us a call. We're always glad to hear you, and we'll certainly follow developments in Belarus very closely. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for your involvement. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former Librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. 
Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.